Hi, this is Bob Sorrentino from Italian Roots and Genealogy, and I'm here to, today with Anthony Riccio, who has um, authored several great books about uh, Italian Americans and their stories. And what's really great about his books is that uh, he's given a presentation of people in their own words. So uh, thanks, Anthony. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to do these kind of conversations. And the reason why is, um, is that these are vehicles of, of keeping our history very, very much alive. And that's not because I've written it, but because the nature of my books are stories that people told me that have been passed down from generations to generations and then end up in my books as actual oral history. So by doing these uh, presentations, it, it's not so much about you know, me, the author. It's, it's about us, our, our, our roots, because the stories that make up my books are pure uh, oral history. They're stories just like, like you said at the beginning of, the, uh, uh, the beginning of our conversation. Let's have a table conversation. And I like that because um, all the people I interviewed over the last, uh, I guess, 40 years of, of writing books, I mean, interviewing, I, it was pretty much dinner table conversations. It wasn't a formal uh, kind of thing where you asked uh, really, I wasn't trying to prove a thesis here. <laughs> I wasn't trying to write a dissertation with my work. I was just trying to capture the stories of working class, regular, common Italian Americans all over New England and get their story because I realized that if we didn't get these stories, it was going to be lost. So by, you know, by, by doing these kind of presentations now, we're keeping it alive. We're keeping history alive because that is our history, Bob. Our history mostly. I don't mean to offend any Italian Americans here, but most of our history, because at the turn of the century, most of our ancestors didn't have, I'm not going to say they weren't educated. They were educated in the ways of the world, but they didn't have a chance for formal education because of the social structure. So we're an oral culture, basically an oral culture. So what I did was I tapped into that by conducting hundreds and hundreds of oral histories in different places over the past 40 years, which make up my books. And these oral histories are very kind of like, we, you know, you and I talking right now at the dinner table on a Sunday afternoon, very relaxed. I knew these people. Um, it wasn't like I was walking in trying to get a scoop. Um, <laughs> and I, I think I got some very intimate details, very moving details in a very uh, simple but eloquent way. And hopefully, like I said, uh, we talked about this, you know, maybe we can do a follow-up to this where we can let people listen to some of these oral histories. It's almost like your grandmother sitting down with you again. It doesn't really matter if they're from Boston or New Haven or from Connecticut. It's, it's the same story. Uh, yeah, no, and, and I think that's that's fabulous. And, you know, we all have our, our interesting stories. And, you know, as we were talking in the pre-interview, you know, uh, I was lucky enough to find out that my cousin had recorded my uncle in Bares, which right. I had never known for all of these years. And he finally translated and it. And it is a look into, you know, how he lived from the early 1900s until he came to America in 1950. Um, so I, I want to certainly talk about the stories, but uh, how about your Italian family? My family. Uh, well, it, it, my story begins with my grandmother. Um, you can you can shoot it up on the screen now if you want, because that's where the story begins with me. 
you know, I grew up in a, you know, a typical Italian American neighborhood where, you know, grandparents lived downstairs. We lived upstairs. Another set of grandparents lived next door. Of course. Across the street, yeah, across the street was a, it was a transplanted little Italian village. It really was. Across the street, I had two grown uncles with their wives and all kinds of cousins running around. You know, they didn't venture too far either. And uh, so, uh, but the base of it, you know, the, the, the source of all the, our culture were our grandparents. And I was always around my grandparents. And here I am, this, you know, third generation Italian-American kid growing up in the 50s in the age of Elvis and the atomic age. And if I ever wanted to visit, if I ever wanted to go back to the 1700s or the 1800s, all I had to do was go downstairs and mm. visit my grandparents, you know, who spoke a different language, you know, who, you know, who revered the saints. And there were all these little altars on all the bureaus and the doilies, you know, and the, you know, and, and just their ways were just so different. And I was fascinated by, because I love my, especially my grandmother. That's the picture I want to show because she's the source of all my going back to Italy and my, my writing. I was so fascinated by her ways and her language. You know, she spoke in a dialect. Um, she had funny stories. She, she would, uh, she was from, you know, she could have been from the 1200s. I mean, she was just um, that embodiment of our culture in so many different ways. So I used to say to her, uh, and we kind of made up our own language because she spoke in dialect and I spoke English, you know, American, and we kind of <laughs> figured it out as we went along. So I learned from her, she learned from me, but we were very close. You know, we were very close. And I'd say, Graham, you know, why would you go, why would you leave Italy and come here? And of course, this is, you know, the universal question that I'm sure many of us asked our grandparents. Me being a young kid at the time, of course, I'm studying now high Italian culture in grammar school. I'm learning about Bernini and Michelangelo and Da Vinci. So I'm figuring, hey, you know, this must be a great country. And so I go to my grandmother and I didn't understand the whole history of the North and the South and the reunification and the peasantry and the social structure. And I said, so grandma, why did you leave? And she just used to say to me, because I don't like it. Because mm. I don't like it. And that was the end of the discussion. You know? <laughs> and she didn't realize it. But at the time, she was fueling, you know, all my imagination. To, and I couldn't wait. I could not wait. Till the time I got old enough, I wanted to go back to Italy and find out where she came from. So, so what town did she, where, where is she well, from? She, she, like my grandparents on both sides, came from these little hamlets that if I when I go to Italy I tell people the names and they're they scratch their heads because <laughs> they've never heard of it my grandmother came up from a little village the biggest village was Cayazzo Cayazzo which is near Capua Cayazzo and the next town down was my grandmother's town was the town of Alvignano Alvignano and um, it's just a little look we especially the people from the Campania region and Pretty much the South. But most of the, we all descended from one tribe. We were all from the Samnites. Mm -hmm. The Samnites, they were a roughly organized group of peasants and farmers that didn't have big cities, but these, they had these pastoral villages where they were organized by these cooperatives. You know, they had these farming villages. And that was pretty much the same until almost like the 1950s and 60s. If you go back to these little villages and especially the Campania re region, you find, they're still really rural places, and you get that taste, that feeling that somehow this was ancient. These rolling hills and these farmlands, 
you know, go back hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that's where most, most of us, not all, because some of us, you know, come from cities, but I'd say of 70, 80%, at least of the people in Connecticut and, you know, that area. And boy, they all descended from that peasant culture, from these little rural villages, from the same kind of place my grandparents came from, these little hamlets. And that's what they were fleeing at the turn of the century, Bob. You know, they were, there was no, there was no future there. You know, it was the end of the line. We'll be right back. Italian Roots and Genealogy is proudly sponsored by Your Dolce Vita and Dawn Matera, connecting people to their purpose in life and continuing their legacy. For more information, contact Dawn at www.yourdolcevita.com. Yeah, and you know, my, now my my mom's parents came because my grandfather had fought in the war in Libya, I think oh, around 1910 or 1911. Yeah, the, the right? Turkish, Italo-Turkish war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the the right after I guess World War One started, uh, my grandmother didn't want him going back to the army. By that time, she had you know a couple of kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so they came to America. Uh, and, and I've heard two stories, but I think more likely because they left my uncle behind, I think they originally, like a lot of people did, and I, I didn't know this until recently, planned on going back. But then they started having more children. And, you know, I guess my grandfather had, you know, work and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And, and so they so they stayed. And, you know, again, they didn't have the money to go back and forth or, you know, somebody come over and pick him up and bring him back or anything like that. So. Yeah. Um, and, and I had mentioned this in the pre-interview that he, you know, he actually stayed there, uh, until he was in his thirties and had his whole family and he didn't come until around 19, well, first to Canada in 1950. And then, you know, uh, uh, to, to America in like 54 or 55 or something. Interesting. Yeah. We all have that, you know, all of us, uh, all, especially us third generation, second, third generation. We all have that story, and there's so many variations of it. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And I got to just, now that you say all this, uh, you know, I just realized that, you know, in some of my books, I was fortunate enough to capture firsthand stories of the trip, of being on the ships. Yeah. You know, people who actually came over and recalled the whole experience, um, uh, you know, firsthand, fascinating stuff. Uh, they talked about, you know, the, the, the sicknesses and not being able to eat for eight days. And, you know, there's one striking image in one of the books, the, the one on the women, that the book on the, on the women that I wrote, is that they actually, just imagine this for a minute, Bob. You're coming over, especially, mostly the women came after the men. Right. The men right. would call for the women. And the women now, who were left in these little villages like my grandmother, think of it for a second, how brave they were. A lot of these women had no no uh, worldly knowledge outside the walls of their city. They weren't allowed to because of the patriarchal system they lived in. They didn't know the ways of the world. They only spoke their dialect. Many of them didn't read. Now they get a letter from home from from the United States from their husband because that's how they planned it. A lot of the women planned these. You know that you, you go to America, make enough money, then you send for us. So now think of it for a minute. You get a letter now in the mail. You know, Serafina, pack up all the kids, sell the cows, get rid of the furniture, buy, get your three, go down to Naples and pick, 
get, a, get on the next ship or to Genoa and come to America. Wow, think of it. Women who never left their villages now, pack up their kids, sell their stuff, bid farewell to their parents, maybe never going to see them again. And they depart for this unknown world. It could have been, you know, this new, this new unexplored world that they just stepped into on their way to find their husbands back to, back to this country they called America with two or three kids in tow. I've got some stories about that. Could you imagine, though, when some of these kids got sick on board? and died. Mm. Mothers stood watching their kids being buried at sea. They were buried at sea. Just, just, uh, just an amazing story that we might have lost had I, you know, didn't capture this one story of a woman who told me watching her son being thrown over the you know, side of the bow, buried at sea. But this is part of our story. You see that these are the nuances that luckily I was able to save in my work. Yeah. And that's, in, that's really incredible stuff. So what possessed you possessed. To, to start this in the first place? I mean, because this is a, this is a, this was a huge effort, especially back when you started. It was, it was unwitting. I mean, I wasn't, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I wasn't, you know, we didn't, I didn't come from a group. My family, our family, we were not writers. We were not intellectuals. We we're just working class people. And I remember, when, I'll tell you a funny story. We're sitting at the uh, Easter table one, one time, and I realized that it was time for me to write my first book. I had all these oral history stories, and I, I said, darn it, you know, if I don't write this book, if I don't publish these oral histories, they're going to get lost. So I got the nerve at the, at the Easter table. There's like 15 of us sitting around at the table, and I, I got to make this announcement, you know. So we're sitting around the table, my mother, my father, the aunts, uncles, the cousins, and I said, excuse me, I, I just want to tell everybody something. And of course, everybody, you know, looked kind of looked at me like <laughs> I'd never done that before. And I, you know, I just kind of stopped for a minute and they looked at me. And I said, uh, Mom, Dad, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a book uh, about the North End. And uh, so my father looks at my mother. My mother looks at my father. My father looks at me. He goes, oh, OK, let's eat. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, you know, great. What possessed me? OK. Well, I was fortunate enough that when I finished college, I had been to Italy two times uh, on study programs. I went to Providence College and I went on a summer program, a study program. And then I went back and found my grandmother's village and got to know my cousins and my aunts and uncles. And that changed my whole life's trajectory. When I graduated from Providence College, I had been to Italy twice. I had been to that little village. I had photographed it um, and I just got the feel for where my grandmother came from. And I wanted more. I just wanted to go back to Italy. I was 21 years old. Luckily, I got a fellowship from Syracuse University to get my master's degree in Florence. And I followed with, a, I got my, uh, I went to Florence the next out of college and graduate school and uh, spent my whole year, you know, studying art in Florence, but then I would photograph and I photographed I spent my whole summers, uh, my whole summer photographing Southern Italy in 1974, 75. So you can imagine the conditions and the photographs, which became my book from Italy to the North End. But that's another story. How did I, what possessed me to do all this? Okay. So, so I come back to America and I got my, my master's in art history and I've been rubbing out, you know, rubbing elbows with some of the greatest art historians. I studying everything's in Italian. All my professors are Italian professors. 
I come back to New Haven in the 70s. There's no jobs. I'm lost. Uh, my girlfriend in Boston, who's now my wife, uh, sent me a note. She said, Anthony, she said, there's a notice I just saw in the newspaper, the Boston Globe. It's four sentences. Uh, I think you might be interested in this. So it said, work in America's oldest anti-poverty agency, uh, work in a neighborhood setting, uh, must speak Italian. I said, ah, that's it. Okay, so I applied for the job. I got the job. What job do I get? I end up in the north end of Boston, which is a very closely knit, closed off place. And I get a job, which was a, a million to one odds that I'm going to, not only, I don't know if you know Boston, but it's very, very, I mean, it's not even provincial. It's so territorial. Every corner is owned by somebody, at least in those days. Never mind the streets. You, you, it was still street corner society in those days. Anyway, so I get a job at this anti-poverty agency called Action for Boston Community Development. And my job was to run the Senior Citizen Center, which was a drop-in center for elders. Uh, in the North End, who are now, they're all on fixed incomes. They're still living in these cold water flats that go back to the 40s and 30s. They're still speaking in their old dialects, okay? And they're, they're poor. Basically, they're just living on Social Security. And they're living in these free, freezing cold water. Anyway, so I run this, I open up this drop-in center. This is federally funded in this neighborhood center. And I become the senior citizen coordinator. So... What happens? Because I understood the Southern code of behavior, because I understood what it meant to be old when I was very young because of my experiences with my grandparents, because my, you know, I was taught that old, I don't want to sound corny, you know how it is, but that old world respect, you mm -hmm. know, that, that way of behaving and acting towards your elders, I was ground into me from a year. So I knew how to act with these folks. And I spoke the language. And I understood the dialect because no one spoke really Italian. They were all talking Sicilian. They were talking Calabrese. They were talking dialects of, I mean, it was, it was like a, like a cosmopolitan. So it was like Southern Italy in the North end of Boston. What happens? They start telling me their stories as they're coming into the drop-in center. I got programs. I got, you know, legal services. We have soup on, you know, I got a woman cooking, making soup for them on Wednesdays. We have all kinds of little programs. Now, the word goes out, the word goes out, you know, because it's just the great, you're talking 1977 now, 78. There's obviously, there's no, you know, the information highway are the streets and the corners. You know, everybody's talking with each other. There's no internet. So the word goes out. You got trouble. You got trouble with your landlord. Your, you know, your pipes don't work. You need Go see Andonia, Gila Palitaliana. Everybody go see Anthony. No problem. He'll help you. So now there's like a line into the place in the place because why? I don't know. Because my parents just taught me to be compassionate, to be just to be nice to people, to listen. I learned how to listen at a very young age because that's the culture we grew up in. You know, we learn how to listen as kids, not to respond. Think about this for a second, Bob, the nature of our oral history culture. I don't know about this is how we you listened to learn, not to respond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, listen. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. So, so I began listening to these folks. Of course, they're talking to me in their dialect. I'm starting to listen to these. So we, I decided, look, I've got to start recording all this stuff. This is too precious. 
and uh, I started this neighborhood program, pro this neighborhood thing, where I, I got a cassette tape recorder and I'm walking around the streets of the North End with a tape recorder. I got my camera on my lunch hour, on weekends, I'm photographing them in their cold water flats up on their roof. They got rooftop gardens. They're growing tomatoes on the garden, on, uh, on the roof. They're making wine in their cellars. And I'm photographing all this stuff. And then I'm recording their stories. Because I was in, uh, you know, such a first name basis with it, because I was sort of like their grandson, because their kids had moved. The, most of their kids had moved out now by the, mm -hmm. by the 70s because they're pursuing the American dream. They're moving out to like, you know, they, they got their college degrees. Now they want to move out to the country, you know, outside of Boston. And they're left, you know, they're not, they're not there anymore. So I'm kind of like, you know, the grandson. So I start recording all their stories. And that was my first book. My first two books, actually, um, was because this collection of, of stories that they told me. Um, Portrait of an Italian-American Neighborhood. And there's another one. And then there's another one coming out, too, that I'm waiting for my publisher to finish. Uh, it's going to be out soon. But um, I mean, these like hundreds of hours of these of these just table conversations. You know, I could just knock on any. I could do a home visit to someone and bring my tape recorder, sit down, have a. You know, they say, "Hey, I'm Donio. You know, you're here. Sit, I say it. You know, I say it. Sit down. You know, you want a cup of coffee? Come on. She went on express. Okay, we have a little espresso. We talk. I got my tape recorder rolling. I'm, so I'd ask them. You know. What was it like in Italy? Oh, and they start telling me, you know, what happened in Italy, the boat ride. And that's that was my first book. That's what inspired me. So so um, they 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 had to have a, a, an immense amount of trust in you. They did. To tell you these stories. They, did. Um, they trusted me. Yeah, that's very much. Well, I would help them, too. You know, they knew that, you know, if they had trouble with their landlord or they need legal services or if I could help them in any way or they had just that they just wanted to talk. I would always listen, you know, that's just the way I was brought up. And for you to get the stories out of them, because I know, you know, a lot of people I interview, they, they tell me the same thing. And even in my family, uh, and you know, I was, I was probably too young to ask at the time, but, uh, they didn't talk too much about Italy. And I guess if you, you know, if you, you know, if you probed, uh, they would tell you, but, um, you know, I know in, in, in both my families, uh, they didn't really talk a lot about Italy. You know, they, they concentrated more about being here. Yes. Yes. Well, because, you know, what, like my grandmother, I found out later, you know, she left Italy because, you know, she, you know, this sounds a little crude, but she said, you know, um, I, I was, I got tired of peeing out in the woods. You know, mm. I, I, you know, they, she lived in a place that had no electricity. You know, she's, <laughs> she wouldn't eat pasta cheech. Because she said, <laughs> I used to say to her, how come you don't like, she says, she said, my killer robots in Montagny Borch. You know, that's the stuff we used to feed the pigs. So she wouldn't eat it. <laughs> she wouldn't eat because, it. No, because it was funny, but it wasn't because she wanted to leave that misery, you know, that, that peasantry, that hard work, that subsistence farmer world that if you didn't, you know, if you didn't raise your crops, you'd starve. You know, that's the culture that they came from, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, even my, my uncle's house, which he inherited from my great-grandparents, uh, they, they didn't have indoor plumbing when they yeah. left. We always think that people came over here because, uh, you know, because of America, they wanted a better chance. They, we have all... My grandmother came here for a different reason. My grandmother overthrew the... Believe it or not, 
she had the, the nerve, the guts to overthrow 3,000 years of, it, of, you know, of, of the, of the of patriarchal system that, that defined women. The reason why my grandmother left her village was because her father forbade her to marry the boy in the village she wanted to marry. Mm. So she had this standoff with my great-grandfather, and, she's, and then my, she, she used to tell the story. She, she said, you know, I asked my father I wanted to marry this guy. He didn't want me to marry her. I packed my bags the next week, and I left. <laughs> so that's how she ended up in New Haven. And you know, the interesting thing about that. that. Patriarchal yeah. society, though, you know, yes, the fathers, you know, they they, they had arranged marriages and all of that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. But, but the women were in charge. You better believe it. <laughs> no exactly question. Right. They were in charge. Bob, I, I, you're, you're so right. And I'm telling you, now the book, and I keep talking about my books. I don't mean to sound like, uh, you know, it's about me because it's not. I'm not trying to promote my books. But in the book, Farms, Factories, and Families. Italian-American women of Connecticut. I ran all over the state of Connecticut and interviewed women from all the towns, elderly Italian-American women. And when I got back and wrote the book, I realized, and they told me this, these women all told me this, that they, they were smart enough to let the man think he was in charge. Right. <laughs> and they would let the man, and they would never confront the man in public because it was his show in public to show that he was in charge. They commanded not just the man, they commanded the family economy. In many cases, they, they made the investments in real estate. There's some great stories. I mean, I can go on and on about the stories. There was one woman um, who told me the story about her, her farming husband. They had 10 acres of land that they would farm. He was a tenant farmer. This is in Connecticut in 1920. And they had three children. And there was 10 acres that he would farm and for Mr. Uh, I forgot what his name was, Mr. Stern or whatever, Mr. Scott, Mr. Scott. He was a tenant farmer. And so he would go to market once a week. When he'd come home, he would throw all the silver, the change on the table and give it to his wife. Okay. And this went on for about a year or two. Come home, sell all his vegetables, get a cut of it, you know, give the rest to Mr. Scott, take half for himself. And whatever change he'd have, he'd leave it to his wife. Okay. Two years later, Mr. Scott decides he's going to sell the farm. None of the children want it. And he comes back and says to his wife, this tenant farmer, he says, you know, Philomena, the house, the farm is up for sale. I would love to buy it, but Mr. Scott wants $75. How can we buy this farm? We can't buy it. So they're sitting at the table. They put the kids to bed. And, you know, he's bemoaning the fact that they, they don't have the money. And the wife Goes in the other room, she says, you know, Giuseppe, you know, just sit down a minute. And she goes in the other room, she comes out in her bra, she takes the bra, she goes, here, she says, here's your $75. All the change you gave me all those years, here it is, buy the farm. Wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. And this is the women, I mean, this yeah. is story this is not made for tv not made for for zoom this is real stuff and this just shows you how smart the women were they controlled the family economy they made the wise investments they know how to save money they were really really smart you know they were really smart and they knew their place and they let the man think he was in control you're exactly right exactly yeah right. yeah and and they were the you know they were the rock behind the whole family i mean you, the rock. You, you you know growing up everything revolved around my grandmother. 
You better believe it. She yes. had nine children. She had 23 great-grandchildren. You, you know, her birthday, Mother's Day, there was no place you were going to be unless you were in her presence. Exactly right. And that was the beauty of the old people, uh, Bob, is that there was, no, there was no currency better than your presence. Mm, they yes. wanted nothing. Right. They wanted nothing. And you couldn't thank them for what they did for you. As a matter of fact, I got, you know, people told me stories, you know, they would buy their mother a sweater. She'd say, take it back. I don't want it. All they wanted was your presence. Just the, they just wanted you there. And that's, that was the greatest gift you could give them. My grandparents, I mean, in the North End, just the fact that you were present and you were listening to them, that's all they wanted. They didn't want. You couldn't get them anything material to make them happy. Not, not the old generation. Of course, nowadays, you know, this sounds like a fairy tale, I guess, to a lot of people, but it's true. And the only thing they wanted was not to be forgotten. Mm, right, right. That's yeah. the only thing that they would ask you, don't forget me. Um, as a matter of well, fact, yeah, go ahead. Well, you, and, and, you know, again, that's, you know, people ask me and, you know, sometimes in the family, somebody will say, you know, why are you doing all of this? You know, you know, who really cares and everything like that. And, and to me, it's, that's the point of it all is I, I want to know who these people were, whether grandparents, great grandparents, great, great grandparents, how they live, because in essence, that's who we are. I mean, we are who we are in America. But to your point earlier, the bravery of these people, how they lived, why they live like that, uh, the stamina and the and the um, the love that they had for for their right. family, Not, you know, all of that seems to have disappeared. Yeah, and then yeah, there was exactly right, and that that closeness that you extended to your friends, you know, your extended family that network you had, that was the rhythm of life. You know, you know, it wasn't, we, we measured our wealth by how many times we saw our cousins or our grandmother. Yes. yes exactly. mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I said this, I said this to somebody just the other day, you know, uh, my uncles were like parents, my, my nine, well, eight, you know, besides my mother, eight aunts and uncles on her side were like, Another eight parents, yes. and 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 my yes. cousins were like brothers and sisters. Even to, to, even now, even now, know. yes, it's a hard concept to get across now, Bob, because it's not like anything near like that now. You know, it's just not. It's, life has changed so much, and you're right. Um, and growing up like that, what a what a wonderful you know what an experience growing up in that kind of a comforting you know. I, it's hard to explain. I can't. I'm filled with it. You know, my, my cup is full um, to be around so many loving people that were there for you uh, that you could, you know, you could, you could turn to who would discipline you, you oh, know, yeah. who would keep you. I mean, you know, my, my mother would look at me. My mother still spoke the dialect and sometimes, she, you know, she was more powerful than my grand, you know, she would come out with stuff in Italian that was even stronger. She said, well, yo, lava la vach, you know, young boy, you know, kid, Keep your face clean. And that didn't mean to keep your face clean when she said, la, 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 fach. Mm -hmm. What she would say was, don't you do anything to hurt this name. Don't you do anything that would make us ashamed of you. 
And ba- basically what it was is that maybe you were, you were teetering, you know, you were dancing near the edge there where you probably shouldn't. And she was just to remind you, you know, that, you know, you don't want to do anything behaviorally that's going to hurt your name. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, stuff. I, yeah you, knew, no. you grew up, you just knew what you should not do. And it was reinforced. Like you said, your uncle would tell you, your grandmother would tell you, you know, your cut. It was just, you know, I, I remember sitting in the back of the car on the way to my grandmother's and at least 20 times, make sure you kiss your aunt, make sure you kiss right. your grandmother, make yeah. sure you do this. Don't say that's this. Right. Don't say it. Da, 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 da. That's right. It was just, that, that, that's a beautiful <laughs> thing. It's a beautiful thing. You know, it's just a nice thing. That's that it was, it was our Southern code of behavior. It was the code. It was, there was a code there um, that you and I, you know, absorbed and we know it. Um, and, 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 you know, on the other hand though, um, <clears throat> not so much with my, my, my father's mother, my, my father's father died when I was only about two months old because she was more of a stately person. But with my, with my mother's family, we weren't treated like children either. You know, there was a certain amount of respect that you had to give in all of, in all of that. But I never remember being treated like a child. Like a child. Right. Yes. I do. You're right. Because there was an expectation there. Yes. You know, to grow up and, and just and act right. I don't know how else, else to say it. Just <laughs> act right. You know, and if you didn't, well, you know, there were consequences. And that's where the whole, the whole notion of shame you know, the Mediterranean, there's people write books about it. It's, it's, it, you know, there's so many books written about shame and the concept of shame in the Mediterranean world. But boy, did we, you know, that was really a, a something that would gnaw at you uh, to be ashamed of yourself. Um, that concept, you just didn't want to go there. You don't want to do anything to make yourself ashamed of yourself. Where are we now? I mean, I don't know if that even... I don't even hear that word you no. much anymore. Even, you know, I, I think it would be kind of refreshing if I heard somebody say, you should be ashamed of yourself. I haven't heard that in like 20 years. Have you? No, no, not at all. That was something maybe your grandmother would have said or your aunt or something, you know. But the whole idea is, you know, you just wouldn't do anything to make, to shame yourself. You just knew. Right. And like I said earlier, or the family. Or the um, fa- so, so I, I mean, I know you've interviewed hundreds of people, and this may be an unfair question, but maybe not. Um, what you know, if you were, if you were to consolidate the stories, what would be the the underlying theme of what you heard from from all of these people? Well, there's so many themes. I mean, there's so many. I mean, each each story is a subject. Is you know, is a, is a theme in itself because it's a subject which is how I broke the books down. They're broken down in chronological order. In other words, this body of, for every book, this body of oral histories had to be separated by subject matter. You know, like the Spanish flu epidemic, World War I, uh, World War II, uh, family life, uh, celebrate. Um, the theme, you mean like the thread that runs through all of them? Yeah, yeah. I gotta say then is that um, I think the reason why they were telling me their stories is because they didn't want to be forgotten. 
because that was their way of leaving their mark on the world. They, they, like I said, you know, we, we don't descend from a, a culture of writing, not because we weren't, and I don't mean people that are writing novels to that, but want to offend all our wonderful Italian American, Italian American novelists because they're, especially third generation, fourth generation, they're writing lots and lots of these novels based on, you know, their grandparents and their, their past. But those people, the, our ancestors didn't write their history because they couldn't. And maybe their own expression, their only way of expressing themselves was, we have to remember our oral history tradition goes back to, you know, to, you know, the Odyssey. It goes back, you have to remember, Southern Italy was, you know, was Greek. It was Magna Grecia. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, whole, the whole oral tradition, the whole oral culture goes back thousands of years, if not, if not hundreds. Of th- so that, that tradition of passing down our culture from father to son, mother to daughter, was known for thousands of years. And so they brought that here. They brought that here, uh, you know, with them. Um, and they, they articulated their lives uh, as a writer would through their stories. Um, and I think by them telling me their stories, not only were they putting their house in order, because many of them were elders. Some of them, some of the people I interviewed were, interviewed were in their hundreds, you know, 100, 101. Um, I think the theme, the theme, if there's a theme, one general theme is, goes back to that idea of don't forget me. This mm-hmm. is who I was. This is what I went through. Um, and I want to share it with you. And, and yeah, and I think that's great. And, you know, in fact, I was just, thinking about this other day, I don't know if I was watching some TV show or something like that. And, and I thought about that. I said, you know, we, we have these histories of people that are prominent and, and, you know, even down to people that really don't matter that much, like, you know, maybe a rock and roll star or a movie star or something like that. Uh, and their stories are interesting and they've, you know, they've, they've done a lot, but we, we don't know about the common people. And I think that's what's so exciting about what you've done is to hear about the life of just regular, everyday, regular. normal people and how they lived, which to me is, you know, more fascinating than, you know, someone who could, you know, yeah, make well, 20 movies, you know, or something like that. I think, well, I, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, if I, if I may, I, I think when you, either you read them, you know, in the books, or you hear them, um, you know, and I, like I said, uh, you know, we can, we can, we can choose a few of them, you'll be moved, you'll be moved by the, just the, the simple eloquence of it, you know, the unvarnished, unguarded um, table conversations, where they just tell you what happened, you know, what, and, and, and you know, their own first person uh, narratives, and it's, they were extremely articulate, they were very, uh, Moving, moving stories, you know, that's, that's kind of, and of course, you know, luckily in the books, I either photographed them and included their portrait, or I used one of their family album photographs to illustrate maybe a story that they were telling me about maybe the village or their, their, you know, it's, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, and then I built a history, of course, all my books are, I mean, they're, they're scholarly in the sense that they're footnoted and all my histories are, are written in this academic kind of scholarly way that sort of uh, uh, they introduce you to the oral history. So each, you know, each, each chapter opens with a, a, uh, an essay uh, to give you some background before you, you know, before you read the, uh, the stories, you know, that's my life. So that started 
about my first book. So I started doing these interviews in 1979. And wow. uh, yeah. And uh, like I said, I appreciate very much you uh, interviewing me and, and talking with me because, you know, I'm not one of, I'm, I don't, you know, I've never really uh, uh, advertised, you know, myself. I've never really, this is not in me to, to really promote myself as, I only promote it because I think it's so important to our culture. You know, I, I and I'm glad you had a chance, you know, I'm, I'm glad we had this meeting because I, I think you'll, you'll find it, you'll find it interesting. Uh, again, not because of me, but because of the people. That are in uh, yeah, no, definitely. And I, and I definitely want to do a follow up where, you know, if you, you go through, you yeah. know, some of the, some of the stories, you know, we could, yep. we could, um, we could, put together another interview where we introduce, you know, a little snippet you could talk about the people and we, we could, yeah. you know, some of the interesting bits and pieces in it. Uh, it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty simple to do. Uh, and yeah, we should definitely do that. And, um, you know, we'll put, I'll put the, uh, I'll put some photos of the books out there for anybody who wants to find them. Yeah. I, I know they're on Amazon and, um, I, we'll I have a this. website. Oh, great. Okay, good. What's the website? Just www anthonyrichio.com okay. www.anthonyrichio.com yeah it's got all my s s stuff on there uh, well that's great well, we'll put that out there too well I really really appreciate you taking the time I, I, I you know like we said in the pre-interview this stuff is all fascinating to me yeah. learning the stories listening to the stories and that's and that's why I started doing this you know yeah. um, I, I'm I'm trying to work on a book about my family. It's taking a lot longer than I thought, um, but I'll get there eventually. But in the meantime, this gives me the opportunity to talk to people like you and get yeah. their stories out there. With a lot of other Italian Americans who, you know, whose grandparents, you know, inspired them to go back, uh, just like me. So uh, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Okay, Bob. Thank you. <laughs>